Chapter 2, uh, we're in the midst of the seven letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, we have covered the first three, namely the, church, the letters to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, and now we're at the middle one, the middle one of the seven, Thyatira. And uh, just as way of quick review, um, because we have, and that's an outline of where we come from, but um, the letter to the church of Thyatira, I, you see I've entitled, True to the Faith but Tolerant of Sin, or Tolerating Sin. And um, we're in the middle of Asia Minor here at Thyatira. The letters, again, circulated in a circular fashion on a mail route from Ephesus uh, to Smyrna, Pergamum, and then back to Thyatira. Um, and we last week we looked at the first parts of the letter um, in uh, verses 18 through 20, and that's namely the uh, command, which is, and these are central components to all letters of the seven churches is we have the same components in the outline form and the first being the command to write the letter to the angel and then we talked about the background of the church in the city of Thyatira and if you remember I mentioned this city was perhaps the most insignificant of all seven in terms of there wasn't really anything extraordinary about it in terms of religious setting in terms of political power it was the smallest city of the seven. It was mainly on a trade route from Pergamum going down um, toward um, Laodicea. Laodicea uh, is halfway between Pergamum and Sardis in the middle of a broad river valley. So that's a picture of current day um, Thyatira, broad, broad open plain. So it was very vulnerable to attack. It changed hands many, many times. And we looked at some of the ruins of the ancient city, mentioned that it's the home of someone mentioned in Acts, that being Lydia, who was the first European convert in uh, Philippi. She was in Philippi when Paul came to Philippi, and so she was the first convert to Christianity in Europe, because Philippi is part of Greece, and Thyatira is part of Turkey, Asia Minor, in the Roman Empire in the first century, but Turkey today. And we talked about how they dyed purple fabrics there. And then the next component is the self-description of Christ. He describes himself in verse 18 as the Son of God. No longer is the focus so much on comforting the people in terms of the self-description like the other three letters, but he's declaring his deity from the very beginning. He is the Son of God who has authority and has ability and omniscience to judge. Because he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, the feet of a ruler indicating his power to rule. Because when you came to the feet of a ruler, you came to acknowledge his sovereignty and his power over you. The next component, um, I think I just turned it off, hit the wrong button. Um, and of course, that's the Old Testament reference to how he searches the hearts and test the mind to give according to the deeds of every person. And we looked at their 
um, commendations. What was good about the letter? Verse 19, I know your works and the components of your works are your love and your faith and service and perseverance. And those are qualities of the works. They had loving works, faithful works, serving works. The word there is we get deacon from. And perseverance, enduring with patience and under trial. And then the most extraordinary compliments at the end of verse 19, that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So they're growing in their works. They're growing in their qualities that are commended. And that to me is a great compliment to any church is that the things of late are better than the things at first. But that brings us um, to this point where we will pick up today. And that is the criticism. Verse 20. So this is start reading there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him, uh, I give. To him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, as I mentioned last time, this is the center church. And the literary structure of the whole group of letters to the seven churches is such that the center letter has the core message. And the core message is that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, knows his churches. He rules and reigns over them. He knows them. He knows their deeds. And the central statement is found in verse 23 where he says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts to give to each one of you according to your deeds. See, the point is, is that Christ knows his churches. So he knows who deserves what. He knows who has what commendation. And he knows who has what criticism. So in that perspective, he is not only um, worthy to judge, but he is knowledgeable and capable to judge rightly and purely and makes no mistakes. There are no mistakes with Christ. He knows exactly what's going on in each church. I think that Thyatira is also significant 
because it's a huge contrast between the best of the churches and the worst of the churches. Um, most scholars talk about how Thyatira is so corrupt because so much time is spent on this sin of Jezebel. And that's where we've come today. But don't forget that this is in stark contrast to what I just gave you, that they are a loving church, they're a faithful church, they're a serving church, and they are an enduring church, and that they're growing in all that. But verse 20 is a huge shift in tone. It is a big change all of a sudden with one word, the very first word. And we are going to take it a word at a time here for a moment. Look at verse 20. This conjunction signifies a big change in tone and in the purpose of the writing. And isn't that significant that how you can have everything going for you Things in a church, things in a family, things in a life can be almost perfect. And yet there's that one huge but. There's that one huge exception that makes everything different. It's the concern that Christ has is subtle to begin with, but yet dramatic because it is in stark contrast to what he's just said. And isn't it true how that one piece of leaven leavens the whole loaf. Like if um, if you were making, and leaven's not a good illustration for us because number one, we don't make bread. Number two, we don't deal with leaven. But, but let's say you're uh, uh, making uh, store-bought biscuits and you walk the can on the counter and you pull the biscuits out. That's the preparation. And then you drop a biscuit on the floor where there might have been an accident from your inside pet just prior to that. And it lands on the same spot. And so you realize that you got most of it, but there could have been a speck left of what the pet left behind that got in that biscuit. But there's not much in there. You know, there's still more biscuit than there is what the pet left. I know y'all are laughing at my illustration. But, but do you get my point that how does, do you want that biscuit? Because, I mean, that's the one I'd have to eat, I'm sure. But you see what I mean? How one speck can ruin the whole thing. And that's where we are. Next word. Is that the last biscuit or are there any more biscuits? <laughs> In my house, it would probably be the last one. But notice the next word that we need to focus on. You. I have this against you. That you. John Stott put it this way. In that fair field, a poisonous weed was being allowed to luxuriate. In that healthy body, a malignant cancer had begun to form. An enemy was being harbored in the midst of the fellowship. The enemy was, was not external. The enemy was internal. You know, they weren't threatened from the outside. They were threatened from the inside. The threat was not evil. The threat was evil within. So you see why the word you is significant? I have this against you, that you. So he's addressing this to the church. And you say, well, wait a minute. The problem's Jezebel. 
No, Christ is giving criticism to the church. This letter is not criticizing Jezebel. The letter is criticizing the church. So how telling is this when we want to deal with problems in our lives, problems in our families, problems in our churches? Where should we look first? At ourselves. That's where the problem is. You know, we can talk about, and I know we're trained from the beginning to do it this way. Well, but he did this. Or well, but she made me do that. <clears throat> but that's not the issue, is it? And when you stand before Christ, um, I can assure you the issue will not be what somebody else did. The issue is what did we do? And the same thing in a church. The issue for Grace Fellowship is not what's going on in some other church. The issue for Grace Fellowship is what's happening in our church. So here's a question for us to think about. What might Christ see in our church that would cause him to criticize us? What might Christ see in our family that would say he would have that against us? What might he see in me or in you that he would say, I have this against you? And here's a clue. If we're looking for what Christ may have against us, Where's the first place we should look? Should it be our weaknesses? Or should it be our strengths? Like, where did Peter fail? In his strengths, right? Where we think we're strong, take care, because lest you fall. We're always the weakest in where we think we're the strongest. Because Christ has us to live victoriously in dependence upon him. So where we're most dependent is where we're most secure. And where we're most independent is where we're most at risk. Next, next road. Next word. Sorry. Now this is interesting. The problem he has with the church is that you tolerate. When I thought tolerate was a good word. We hear it on TV every day. And this country's gone crazy over tolerance. I mean, it is the most exalted virtue in America. You can have no greater virtue than to be tolerant. Unless you're a conservative. <laughs> but but isn't, it, isn't it odd how that tolerance is exalted as such a great virtue? And um, yet, here is Christ criticizing his church. For being what? Tolerant. You know, I don't know if y'all saw where the two twin brothers that were going to be on Home and Gardens TV were kicked off because of their views on homosexuality. And they did an interview with them on, obviously, Fox News that uh, where they were talking about how it's amazing. They were very well-spoken, both seem to be genuine believers and they were talking about it's, it's amazing that one can be talking about loving things they were talking they were expressing their views of love and family and marriage from a biblical perspective and they were twisted and became 
hateful. They were used as hateful terms just because they didn't support gay marriage. So tolerance is the byword of politically correct America, but it was not a good word for Christ. Tolerance is gone crazy. Um, Y'all seen these bumper stickers? I mean, this is the ultimate virtue in modern day America, is that we have to tolerate everything. And yet again, I just think we don't need to miss the fact it's extremely significant to me that the harshest condemnation Christ has for all of his churches to date in Revelation is because they are tolerant. He didn't say that you're wicked. He said you tolerate the woman Jezebel. All right. So think about this as a summation. How is tolerance deceptively desirable to our culture, yet demonically destructive to us and our churches? <clears throat> Next word. And I enter with fear and trembling. Good thing is Debbie is on her way to Little Rock today. So the next word to focus on. <laughs> well, I know I'm out on limb here. Um, I'm even outnumbered in here this morning. So, um, but seriously, I don't want to be misunderstood. But notice what the next word is. That you tolerate the woman. Now, I am not implying that women are the problem. But what I'm trying to do is get us to think about is there something fundamental going on here because she is a woman that may have contributed to the problem. Here's my question. Paul had established the churches in Asia. In fact, in Acts 19 verse 10, it says that he stayed in Ephesus for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is at the end of the first century, maybe 40, 45 years later. So the teachings of Paul should have circulated through the churches. In fact, if they didn't have written copies of the epistles, such as Timothy, Corinthians, they should have received the verbal teaching of Paul. And so like, what do they say? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. All right, so, yet clearly there are teachers in the Bible that are women, right? Aquila and Priscilla, what would they do? They taught Apollos. We know that there are gifted women who teach. So, can a, is a woman forbidden to teach or not? And then look at another scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Paul wrote that women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject to themselves just as the law also says if they desire to learn anything let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So, can a woman teach in church? Can a woman speak in church? Anybody want to? Huh? Paul wasn't married. 
good point, Roy. <laughs> um, actually, he was. He had to be married to be a Pharisee, you know. And um, and he wasn't home much. He, he he was gone. He went on three missionary journeys for a very long time. <laughs> so. Um, here is a, well, let me just back up. Anybody want to tackle this? Anybody want to jump on it? Where's Bruce? Is Bruce not in here? <laughs> well, of course, I'm trying to set up somebody to really step in here where they wouldn't get fed today. <laughs> I mean, a woman speak, but is that a woman being the authority of the church? Or just to speak or to teach. I mean, that's the way I kind of read it. Being maybe over the church or authority of the church. Yeah, and and you're dead on, Donnie. In my opinion, the scriptures do not teach that a woman a woman cannot speak. They do not teach that a woman cannot teach either. They teach that a woman cannot exercise authority over a man or authority over the church in a leadership role. And see, <clears throat> you see women throughout the Bible who are prophetesses. You know, she claims to be a prophet. There are women in the Bible who are prophetesses. Anna, Isaiah's wife. Um, uh, Philip had four daughters who were prophet, prophetesses. Um, so women can be prophets, or they were in Old Testament days. You know, the gift of prophecy in that regard. Foretelling the future is gone. But... What's forbidden is determined by context. Notice verse 12 here in 1 Timothy 2. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So the context is, in, like Donnie said, in a leadership authority over the whole church. And even more specific is the context of this. What's the context? 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14. Spiritual gifts. Specifically, in chapter 14, it's talking about two spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, which were both apostolic gifts by which God demonstrated His authority resting upon those apostles who spoke. So, we see women in the Bible who are prophets. We see women in the Bible who are leaders, too, by the way. Miriam and Deborah, were great leaders in the Old Testament. And we all know that oftentimes women are better leaders than men. In fact, they, I hate to admit it, but they do most everything better than we do. <laughs> so, so my point is, just, just to be sure that I dig myself out of the hole I purposely threw myself into, is that the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is saying the women are to keep silent about what? The apostolic gifts of prophecy and tongues because they were, they were given to the apostles to demonstrate God's authority upon them as his mouthpieces. So it's not to say, in my opinion, that a woman, a woman cannot speak in a church. It's not to say a woman can't teach in the church. It's not to say a woman can't have a leadership role in the church. But narrow it down to specifics. 
You don't ever see women in the Bible who are apostles. You don't ever see women in the Bible who are pastors. So, for some reason, it's like, why does God work through the prayers of puny men like us when He's sovereign? I don't know. Why does God entrust His gospel to clay pots like us when He could write it in the sky? I don't know. But He gets greater glory doing it that way. Why would He restrict the two leadership offices of the New Testament foundation and then the New Testament continuance of the office of pastor? Why would He restrict that from the most capable sex? I don't know. But He has. So, now, anybody got a comment on that? One thing I saw in that was if the woman is over everything and all the authority, the child sees that, goes home, and who's she going to turn to at home? It should be the father, not the mother, but she's just seeing the mother in control. And it's naturally she's going to go to that one. And maybe for generations, that's going to be generations. Well, obviously, like 1 Corinthians 11 talks about, it's because of the angels. God is demonstrating a vertical hierarchy that I do not understand. I, I really don't. I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, what's the word, falsely complimentary here to women. I don't understand why he would not allow women to hold those offices, but he didn't. Well, I think, I mean, like, like you said, there's a, there's a creative order, and here's where our fallen world, you know, men and women are designed different. They have different roles. Neither one is inferior to the other. The leadership and headship of, of the husband and the responsibility for the care and protection of the family is... Uh, is very important. The, the, the mother or the woman is to, uh, I mean, you read in Proverbs 31, that woman took care of the entire household, taught the children. Titus teaches about older women teaching younger women. Uh, you know, it's, it's different in function. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know, Chuck can attest to this, you know, in a military campaign, you have a hierarchy and the, the, the soldier shooting the gun and, and, the, and the general, you know, doing the battle plan, both of those are important. Both are, they're necessary to complete the whole. Uh, you know, that, that's, the, that's where the, the husband and wife are to be born flesh. Those roles are complementary and essential to each other. Uh, but they're not subservient to you. It's not demeaning. Women do teach. And, and just because you're teaching other women and teaching children, that's more important than me. Then, uh, like I said, and, and as far as well, not more important, but as important as teaching in, within the confines of the church. And then, isn't it noticeable or noteworthy that the role of submission is the greater role? Christ submitted Himself to the Father, um, and likewise. The, the role of submission is often more accomplishing, more powerful. And I'll say this. I don't believe women are restricted from anything else. You know, besides these roles that are reserved for men in the church. Like, for example, I don't care what Rutgers University thinks about her. I would vote for Condoleezza Rice for president. 
you know, and and I think she's qualified. She's well, anyway. I started to really go down a political statement there, but um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't be in a church where Condoleezza Rice is pastor. Not because she's not qualified, but because God restricts her from that. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know, we we all lie to I've got tons of heroes of faith, you know, all down through the centuries of the church, you know, again, have led the church out of stuff like, you know, what we're talking about now. And, you know, we got all those heroes. But I can guarantee you, probably the percentage is very, very small. The vast majority of those behind those great men, there was a mother who prayed. And taught them the word of God from a young age. The vast majority of them had a mother at home that was unbelievable. She did not recognize it, but but so you know, I heard a guy say that behind and whether it's a mother or a wife, behind every great man who's a leader, there's a woman behind him that's that nobody knows about that's done more than anybody else for that person. And, well, and I know we need to move on, but I, I just want I, I want to point this out because here's my next question. Is there a root problem here where he says, I have this problem with you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel? So the issue is that they're tolerating the woman Jezebel. All right, so I don't know necessarily... It might have been that she has usurped the role, that she is assuming a, an apostolic role. The, as I mentioned, she claims to be a prophetess. It's in the, uh, verse 20 that she claims to be a prophetess. And I think the role of Old Testament prophet should have faded away by then. And obviously she was a false prophet anyway. But the point is she was leading and teaching wrongly. She's leading people astray. So whether she usurped the role of uh, a man in the church or not, she is teaching and leading wrongly. And she's leading people astray. That's wrong. So what is the root of the problem? What, like Before it got to the point where Jezebel is, because obviously this has gotten to a, a bad situation, because Christ says, I gave her time to repent. She didn't. She's got children, second generation people following her now. So this has been going on a long time. Where did this problem start? Where did the church mess up? By tolerating her usurping a role that she shouldn't have. And, and what do we call, what did they fail to do that's the opposite of tolerance? Yes. Y'all hear what he said? Discipline. And that word is a bad word. It, I, and in fact, I don't even like you. I, I struggled in my study time trying to think of a better way. Maybe a better way to say it is accountability. But you know, when we say discipline about our children, does that imply that we don't love our children? If we don't discipline, that implies that we don't love them. It comes from the same word we get disciple. Great point. It comes from... The same word disciple, which means a follower, a learner. Discipline is a loving thing. What person doesn't discipline the child that they love? Yet what church doesn't discipline the people that's in the church? So, 
I think there's a great parallel to, to this with what we have churches today. And I think God will, will judge these churches that are doing the same thing, that are tolerating things that they shouldn't be doing. And then at the end, or maybe even as we speak today, their church is dead. That's a great point, Danny. And that's what it really struck me studying this for two weeks. Is I'm overwhelmed to think how scary it is to be a church in America today. And we think we can be doing everything right. But what are we tolerating? And even in the name of love, we say, well, and can't you see how this started? That, you know, there are a lot of theories about um, who this Jezebel might have been. Um, in fact, we'll go ahead and go to that point. Um, I found this book cover that this pastor wrote about the church of Jezebel and it kind of implies the whole connotation of who a Jezebel might be. But one thing that I think is interesting is um, one of the theories might, might be from an ancient manuscript, the uh, article in front of woman, Jezebel, has changed to your. And so it, they theorized that it could have been the wife of the senior pastor if you take to the interpretation that angel is a messenger who's delivering the letter. So they think what well, could have been the wife of the senior pastor. Um, there are all kinds of theories. Some people even think it's Lydia, who was a false apostate, came back to her hometown. Uh, they think it was a symbol for a, a goddess in the town. Uh, if you buy into the theory that it's all symbolic about church history, which it could be as a secondary application, but I think initially this is a real church with a real issue and a real person in it. But if you hold to that symbolism, a lot of people feel like the church of Thyatira represents the Roman Catholic church, so therefore in the Middle Ages, so therefore the Jezebel they're referring to is Mary. And if you think about what's being said here, a lot of that fits in terms of uh, context. But I think the instant original application and meaning was this was a person in the church. And Jezebel is a pseudonym. It's um, like uh, any real strong person, you might say, well, he's a Samson. Well, that doesn't mean his name is Samson. That means that you're referring to him with the name that means strength. Well, I don't think this woman's name was Jezebel. Who names their wife or their child Jezebel? How many children do you know named Judas? How many daughters do you know named Jezebel? I don't know about y'all, but when I grew up, I can remember my grandmothers or people, they would always use the term Jezebel. Like, she's painted up like a Jezebel. Um, and it implied a woman of ill reputation, of uh, ill repute. Anyway, enough of that. But, but back to Danny's comment about how we're tolerating things. This this may have started off where she was leading a house church, and she started in, in false apostasy. But a sincere, she might have even been sincere trying to help people, love people. But she didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit because she wasn't a genuine convert, uh, convert to Christ. She started saying, "Well, now look, this problem y'all got with all these guilds. You can't be a member of the guild. You can't make money because." unless you belong to the trade guild of the dye workers down at the local union hall or the sheet metal workers or whatever, you can't make a living. 
Well, let me tell you, there's a dualism. Your body is evil, your spirit is pure. So what you do with your body doesn't affect your spirit. So therefore, you can go participate in the feast. You can participate in the meat sacrificed to idols. You can participate in the idolatry. And you can even participate in the gross immorality and sexual perversion that happens. Whatever you do to your body doesn't affect your spirit. So therefore, that kind of message would sell, wouldn't it? Because people say, well, hey, I like that. Because I can participate in the world and I don't lose my hell insurance. You know, and so back to Danny's point, what does that sound like? That's what's on TV. Is that, look, you just name it and claim it, pray this prayer, recite this incantation over you, walk the aisle, get wet, and you're, you're delivered. Now, go ahead and live any way you want to. Because you got hell insurance. And it doesn't matter where you live. Because grace is cheap. And it's amazing. So, in fact, we deliver grace before we convict people of sin. You know, like their preachers on the TV now, they don't ever even preach sin. So no one ever knows they need grace. But they're given grace so that they might sin. Not so that they might receive forgiveness from sin, but so that they might sin all the more. Well, one thing we have to remember too, we don't discern evil the way God does. Evil from our perception is not, um, it's not evident, it's not overt, and it's not repulsive. That's from God's point of view. Evil from the Evil from our perspective is covert, seductive, and very enticing. If, if you don't believe that, you know, if, if you turn on the TV and someone uh, uh, puts on uh, uh, the story of Abraham on TV, watch the ratings go down. But if they put David and Bathsheba on TV, watch them go up. Exactly. So, so that's what I'm saying. God, that's why Satan presents himself as an angel of light. He and his minions. It's not, it's not overt evil. It's not like you see in the movies. <coughs> Demonic activity is, is, is not the exorcist. Well, and see, and see, like, what I, what I realize constantly in my life is that the sins that I embellish and that I that I refuse to repent of sometimes are the sins that I don't really think they're that bad. You know, and yet Christ's standard is perfection. There is no sin that's not too bad. You know, and like if I hate a brother, I'm a murderer. But this Jezebel may be participating in all the participating in all these deeds that they're being commended for. She's in she's in with the group, but then she's doing this. Well, that's why they're tolerating. Because it seems to fit, and it seems to she's be okay, and it seems to be loving. It seems to be serving, you know. Because here are the people they get their living. They can they can do well in society. They can be a Christian. And they can still be respected in the marketplace. And um, Aaron, one point though, 
even though tolerance may be the subject here, the one word, the nugget that I found in here that really trumps all of that is, is the issue she had, there's no repentance. And, and that's the problem. Uh, whatever we do, we fail to repent. Well, and and that's, that's, a, that's a great point, is that unrepentant sin, we're all sinners. We all sin. The key is, as believers, we can't be unrepentant of sin. We have to be repentant. And, um, well, by the way, just as a quick aside, we don't have time to go there and read all of it, but this pseudonym reflects back to the Old Testament Jezebel. There is no more greater time of evil in the life of the nation Israel than when Jezebel was on the throne with her husband Ahab. She was so wicked. She tried to kill all the prophets of Israel. Uh, she even tried to kill Elijah. She killed a man just to take away his vineyard so her husband could have the vineyard. You know, she was the one. You remember the standoff, the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? where fire came down and consumed the sacrifice and then Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed. <clears throat> right after that is when she tried to kill him. But eventually, as Elijah prophesied, she was killed and the dogs ate her flesh in the street. Um, so that is what is so... This gross wickedness of Old Testament is what's being referred to here that um, Jezebel's guilty of. But here's the sins that she's guilty of to focus in what Danny brought up. First of all, she calls herself a prophetess, and she's not. Secondly, she teaches and misleads my slaves. And the key word there is what? My slaves, bond slaves. So she, who is she teaching wrongly and misleading Believers. These are believers. And right before Matthew 18 about church discipline, what's the context there? It's saying Christ calls a little child to Himself. It talks about how blessed children are and about how the one who receives the gospel like a child is blessed. But woe to anybody who would be a stumbling block to one of my children. It's better that you would uh, have a stone around your neck and be cast into the sea. It's better to die than to be a stumbling block to a child. And that's what she's doing. She's putting stumbling blocks of teaching in front of immature believers in the church so that they join in the immorality and they eat things sacrificed to idols. And as Danny said, the worst sin is she doesn't want to repent. She doesn't want to. I gave her time to. And she doesn't know how think about how sobering that would be to hear Christ himself say, I gave you time to repent. And you, you don't want to. Even in the midst of gross evil to the level that you're called Jezebel. What a, now that's amazing grace. That he would say, but I beg you to repent. He's calling her to repentance. And yet she doesn't want to repent. Severe sin. <clears throat> so what's the consequences? The consequences are right here in verses um, 22 and 23 where she's going to be thrown onto a bed. This is what Christ says is going to happen because of the sin. 
and it says a bed of sickness, sickness is added, it's not there. It literally means like a funeral bed, like a bier. She's going to be killed. She's going to be thrown into a bed of death. Secondly, it says those who commit adultery with her will be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent because they're believers. They can repent, and if they don't repent, they're going to go into great tribulation. And I don't think this is an eschatological reference to the end. I think this is that Christ is going to throw them into great tribulation now, as He would any of us who refuses to repent. He will discipline His children. He may ignore the sins of the lost. He cannot ignore the sins of the saved. And then her children will be killed with death. I think this does not mean her literal physical children, but she's been doing this long enough now, maybe 40 years, where there are spiritual children who follow in the same teaching that she does. So they're threatened with literally with death. Um, that's the literal interpretation there is that she will be, they will be killed with death. And then ultimately, it says the summation of Christ's judgment is that he will give to each one according to their deeds. So, in summation, I want us to wrap up by, by thinking about these points. Um, um, here is what Christ says to the rest of us. He says, don't go down this road. The caution is to the rest who are in Thyatira. Who are the rest? Because you've got Jezebel. You've got those who follow her teaching. You've got her children and those who commit the immorality with her. Who are the rest? The rest are the believers who are not participating, who are not holding to this teaching, who have not known the so-called deep things of Satan. See, she probably taught that you could even dabble into satanic, demonic teachings because it doesn't matter because your spirit is safe and secure. So, but these are the people, the believers in the church who did not participate. They didn't have a place, anything to do with this. He says, I place no other burden on you, but hold fast what you have until I come. No other burden. That implies there is a burden. What's the burden? The burden is, it's enough burden to be in the church you're in. It's enough burden to be dealing with the environment you deal with. I'm not going to place any other burden on you than that. So, takeaways. I think the number one thing that we first need to consider is that a church, a family, or a life needs to be discerning and doctrinally pure so that we don't fall into the same sin of tolerating a Jezebel sin like they were doing. How do we do that? We have to be discerning. We have to be doctrinally pure. And most of all, we have to practice accountability. We have to practice church discipline. Whatever you want to call it. But here's a question. Can a church be a real church who does not love their people enough to hold them accountable. Can you be, and that's not referring to leadership, that's referring to the body. Can we be true believers 
truly loving each other if we don't love each other enough to hold each other accountable for sin. I think it goes beyond the church. It goes to the individual. You know, are you going to tolerate these things in your own life? Are you going to turn on the television and watch that stuff instead of changing the channel? Beyond the church, you're right. Each individual, you're right, Joe. And and all these warnings and things, they are warnings to individuals. They're warnings to families. They're warnings to churches. And then the last point I'll say to wrap up is taking uh, sin into the camp is serious. You know, Peter says judgment must begin where. The household of God. If we, as a body of believers, are not serious about sin, God will be with us. Because God will deal with all unrepentant sin. We can take that to the bank. All unrepentant sin will be dealt with. And God will judge everyone according to his deeds. You say, oh, wait a minute. I thought it was grace. Well, Our salvation is by grace. Our sanctification is by grace. Our glorification will be by grace. But judgment is based on works. You say, well now wait a minute, that's a scary thing. But we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we all shall be judged based on our works. The key is, are we going to have some works that God has done through us? Are we only going to have the works that we've done, which would be wood, hay, stubble, burned up? Or will we have gold, silver, precious stones that the Holy Spirit performed through us that will stand the test of His burning gaze? So, are we tolerating Jezebel's in our own life, as Chuck said, in our own family, in our own church? Are we judging sin within the camp? so that God doesn't have to? Are we taking sin as seriously as God does? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. And Lord, these are very serious words that we've read and covered today, and we should stand in fear and trembling before God who is a consuming fire. Lord, we praise you that you love us. We praise you that you uh, graciously 